Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. Hey friends, before we get started with this live episode that we recorded in New Hampshire a couple weeks back, I just wanted to hop on and sincerely thank you all so much for the success of season one of Haunted Road. We are hard at work on season two, and new episodes begin on January 5th. So in the meantime, follow me on social media, at Amy Bruni, on just about everything. Or you can join us on a Strange Escapes trip by heading to strange-escapes.com. We have a ton planned for 2022, including a European cruise that I am especially excited about. Also, new episodes of Kindred Spirits, my TV show on Travel Channel and Discovery Plus, start on December 18th. So have a wonderful season and cheers to lots of spookiness in 2022. So enjoy. Oh my goodness. All right. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Before we get started, I want to warn you that some of the accounts and experiences I am going to relay to you are absolutely horrifying and disturbing. Usually, <laughs> Usually when listening to Haunted Road, there is a pause or fast forward button. You all don't have that option, but I promise we won't judge you if you need to leave at any point. But this is a live recording, so please don't slam the door on the way out. That being said, I have an apology to make on the season one finale of Haunted Road during the interview with Adam Barry and John Tenney. Adam brought up the story of a painting here at the Mount Washington Hotel where we are recording right now. And I said I would tell the story of the painting at the end of the episode, but guess what I didn't do? So the episode was released and immediately my social media went wild with folks dying to know the story of the painting. So here actually sitting inside the Mount Washington Hotel, I will tell you. So first of all, if you have not listened to the season finale of Haunted Roads, stop right now and head back to season one, episode 12. Then rejoin me here for this especially macabre tale. Except for all of you sitting here, you are stuck. (laughs) Hanging just off the lobby of the resort here, just inside the hallway to the right of the front desk, you will see two large paintings. One is Carolyn Stickney and one is Joseph Stickney, the man who built this hotel and died just a year later. 
There they are, regally looking down at you as you pass, an homage, a reminder of their prominence in the history of the hotel. Except there is something very, very off there. In April of 1897, years before the Mount Washington Hotel was built, a horrible bank robbery took place in Summersworth, New Hampshire. The cashier, a gentleman 70 years of age, was brutally murdered by the bank robber. A description of how he was found is described in a clipping from the United Opinion as, On the floor, in a great pool of blood, was the body of the cashier. His head had been nearly severed from the trunk, the head was marked with several deep gashes made by a blackjack, and the skull was fractured. The body was covered with blood, and the walls and furniture bore additional evidence of the terrible deed. It could be seen at a glance that the cashier had not died without fighting desperately for the books, chairs, and other furniture were scattered over the floor behind the counter. Physicians who have examined the body say it is apparent that the victim was pounded to death after being rendered unconscious. Another fact brought out by the autopsy is that the weapon used to cut the victim's throat was a medium-sized knife, the blade of which was very dull and left a deep but irregular wound. The jugular vein was severed and the wound extended from one side of the head across the throat to a point under the other ear. Now, the bank robber was eventually caught. His name was Joseph Kelly. The Summersworth police caught on to him and learned he had traveled north. They traced his movement to a town in Quebec. There he had paid a hotel keeper $10 in gold for a woman's dress and left the hotel wearing the dress, saying that he wanted to surprise his wife who lived in Montreal. Kelly was found in a Montreal brothel sitting between two prostitutes and still wearing the dress. He was subsequently arrested and jailed for his crime. But what of the bank cashier? Well, it turns out the bank cashier's name was Joseph Stickney. Decades later, the hotel commissioned portraits of Carolyn Stickney and Joseph Stickney to hang in the lobby, except the artist somehow got his hands on a rendering of the bank cashier, not the Joseph Stickney who built this hotel. So the portrait you see in the lobby is not of the wealthy business tycoon Joseph Stickney, but of the 70 years old murdered bank cashier, Joseph Stickney. <laughs> so now that we've cleared that up, and speaking of crimes and criminals, let's take a journey to another notoriously haunted location, a place not nearly as charming or bougie as where we are now. Friends, we are headed to Eastern State Penitentiary. <laughs> I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. <laughs> In 1787, Dr. Benjamin Rush founded the Philadelphia Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons, the first prison reform group in the world. Benjamin Franklin joined the group on August 13th. Just two years later, Dr. Rush oversaw the formation of Penitentiary House with a capacity of 16 cells. It was built in the Walnut Street Jail in Philadelphia, and an experiment with day and night solitary confinement began. Dr. Benjamin Rush and others in the society hoped to outlaw public punishments and replace the current overcrowded and corrupt prison system with a system of private, solitary confinement. Rush proposed a radical idea, to build a true penitentiary, 
a prison designed to inspire genuine regret and penitence in the hearts of people convicted of crimes. From the inception of the society in the late 1780s, it took more than three decades before Eastern State Penitentiary was constructed. The group of Philadelphians who conceived and designed Eastern State Penitentiary were working within the framework of the newly industrializing cities. Formal institutions of many sorts were being developed to replace the informal methods of managing community life. Everything from banking to the education of the deaf was becoming specialized, professionalized, and controlled. These leaders promoted the development of orphanages, almshouses, schools, and cemeteries. ESP then takes some of its importance from the fact that it was an integral part of an urban renovation that included many new facilities for community improvement. After Russia society spent years advocating for a new way of imprisonment beyond the 1790 Walnut Street Jail, the Pennsylvania legislature approved funding to build the Eastern State Penitentiary in 1821. Once construction was greenlit by the state, four hopeful architects submitted their designs for consideration. Of those, John Havland, a British architect who had settled in Philadelphia, won the commission. He received a $100 prize for his design. Rival architect William Strickland, whose design had been rejected, was chosen to oversee the construction. Strickland, however, was fired from this position the following year, and Havland was hired in his place to oversee the construction of his initial design. Havland saw the project through to its completion in 1836. The bones of the building were shaped to reflect the religious aspirations of its creators. Although modern, these were still sparse and austere spaces. Prisoners could choose between reading the Bible or honest work like shoemaking or weaving. The interior of the penitentiary resembles a church with its 30-foot barrel-vaulted hallways and tall arched windows. In contrast, the exterior is a menacing medieval Gothic facade built to intimidate that ironically implies that physical punishment took place behind those grim exteriors. Virtually all prisons designed in the 1800s were based on one of two systems, New York State's Auburn system or the Pennsylvania system embodied by the Eastern State Penitentiary. During the century following Eastern State's construction, more than 300 prisons in South America, Europe, Russia, China, Japan, and across the British Empire were based on its plan. Robert Vaux of the Philadelphia Society, who had been extensively involved in the planning of the penitentiary, summarized the basic principles of the system. One, prisoners should be treated not vengefully, but in ways designed to convince them that through hard and selective forms of suffering, they could change their lives. Two, to prevent the prison from being a corrupting influence, solitary confinement of all inmates should be practiced. Three, in his seclusion, the offender was to have an opportunity to reflect on his transgressions so that he might repent. Four, solitary confinement is a punishing discipline because man is by nature a social being and five, solitary confinement is economical because prisoners do not need long periods of time to benefit from the penitential experience. Fewer keepers are required and the costs of clothing are reduced. The strong faith in reformation coupled with deterrence is very evident. Eastern State Penitentiary was the world's first true penitentiary, a prison designed to inspire penitence or true regret in the hearts of prisoners. 
ESP refined the revolutionary system of separate incarceration first pioneered at the Walnut Street Jail, which emphasized principles of reform rather than punishment. The penitentiary originally consisted of seven cell blocks that radiated from a central surveillance rotunda. In this concept, each prisoner had their own private cell, centrally heated with running water, a flush toilet, and a skylight. Adjacent to each cell was a private outdoor exercise yard contained by a 10-foot wall. These blocks may represent the first modern building in the United States. The physical design of the structure was as much of a marvel as were the inward methods. The building has been expanded numerous times, but the earliest parts of the construction were the first seven blocks. Some interesting context. This modern design was particularly impressive for its time. Even the White House, with its new occupant Andrew Jackson, had no running water and was still heated by coal-burning stoves. In 1836, the initial footprint was finally completed. ESP covered an area of 11 acres with state-of-the-art plumbing, sewage systems, and 450 centrally heated cells. The whole endeavor had cost nearly $780,000, making it one of the most expensive buildings of its day in the United States. According to the official data's inflation calculator, $780,000 in 1836 would be over $23 million today. In the 1870s, four additional cell blocks minus the original attached exercise space were added in between those already constructed. So when Eastern State originally opened, it was designed to hold 250 prisoners. In 1829, the first prisoners arrived. Two years later, in 1831, the first female prisoners arrived. According to travel writer Quinn Mosby, when the earliest prisoners were brought into the facility, they were examined and given a number. At that point, they lost their humanity. A hood was placed over a prisoner's head as guards led them to their cell. They were locked in their cells for the entire day, fed through a slot in the door, and only given a half hour to exercise. The institutional dedication to silence was thorough and complete, at least in the early years. According to Mosby, the most devastating blow was the sound of silence. Prisoners were not allowed to speak, sing, or hum. This was a place of absolute quiet. Some prisoners were gagged with a metal tongue clamp if they did not abide by the code of silence. There was one death from cholera in 1832, and in the 1890s, many inmates died from tuberculosis. Honestly, the number of deaths that took place there from suffering, from chronic and untreated conditions throughout the years is staggering. Along those lines, I'm not sure that it's possible to overstate just how isolated and bleak early life for ESP prisoners truly was. Not only were they hooded during the few moments outside of their cells, but they were required to be silent for the majority of their days. No mail was allowed in or out, and visiting hours were non-existent. Inside their cells, prisoners only saw light from the skylight, dubbed the Eye of God. Talk about a looming presence. Each cell was fitted with feed doors so prisoners could eat their three square meals a day in total isolation. Guards wore fabric over their shoes so prisoners would not hear their footsteps. The punishments put in place at ESP were horrifying. There was a water bath. If a prisoner transgressed, they were dunked in icy water before they were hung on a wall overnight. The frigid air would cause skin to ice over before morning, and many prisoners didn't make it through. There was also something called the mad chair. In the early years of ESP, 
Contemporary doctors believed mental illness spread through the body through circulation. Following their logic, restricting blood flow would theoretically cure the mental anguish. They designed what they called the mad chair. It was created so inmates could be strapped in so tightly it was literally impossible to move a muscle. They would be forced to sit in this chair for days without food. Sometimes prisoners' limbs were amputated after they were released from the device because the damage was so extensive. iHorror.com claims that the mad chair was also in the pit known as the hole, an underground cell block beneath cell block 14 where there was no light and inmates were strapped tightly to a chair, restricting any movement for days with periods of starvation. Some prisoners once removed from the restraints were permanently crippled. There was a punishment known as the iron gag. For this punishment, an inmate's hands were tied behind the back and strapped to an iron collar in the mouth so that any movement caused the tongue to tear and bleed profusely. In the earliest days of ESP, suspicion arose regarding the treatment of prisoners. Among other charges, the most serious were those brought against Warden Samuel Wood for cruel and unusual punishment. Specifically, Wood was investigated for the untimely death of inmate Matthias McComsey, who was placed in an iron gag as punishment for talking. McComsey's hands were bound behind his back and shackled, as the gag was forced to be placed over his tongue while the iron bar was attached by chains to the shackles on his wrists. One hour later, McComsey was found dead in his cell, and though the penitentiary's doctor classified his death as apoplexy or stroke, multiple witnesses contended his death was a result of being placed in the gag. Despite the investigation by police, Wood was not found guilty of cruel and unusual punishment and served as warden there until his retirement. Obviously, with conditions such as these, there were escape attempts. In 1832, the first prisoner escaped. An inmate who served as the warden's waiter lowered himself from the roof of the front building. Once captured, this inmate escaped in the same manner in 1837. In July 1923, Leo Callahan and five accomplices armed with pistols successfully scaled the east wall after holding up a group of unarmed guards. More than 100 inmates escaped from Eastern State during its 142 years of active use, but Callahan is the only one never to be recaptured. All of Callahan's accomplices were apprehended, including one that made it as far as Honolulu. In July 1934, William Spike Conway and four other inmates escaped ESP by swimming half a mile through the sewer. Conway and two others were caught within an hour, and the other two got electric chair for murder, while Conway died by suicide. In 1943, Victor Babe Andrioli, escaped from ESP, apparently by hiding in a delivery truck that was leaving the prison. Several weeks later, the police caught up to Andrioli in Chester, Pennsylvania, diner where he was shot dead. In 1945, 12 prisoners escaped through a tunnel designed and built by prison plaster worker Clarence Kleindienst. The tunnel was 97 feet long and probably took over a year to dig. The tunnel's end let prisoners out at Fairmount and 22nd. At the time, Kleindienst had two extra years left on his sentence, but received ten more years once he was caught. Six of the group were captured immediately, with one being shot in the process. Five of them were caught while in the tunnel, another five were grabbed while crawling out. After all but one was recovered and returned to ESP, they were put in solitary confinement in the hole and given only bread and water and doctor visits each day. 
They stayed there, one in each space, not collectively, for 30 days at the doctor's judgment. As time went on, Eastern State was evolving. Warden Michael Cassidy added the first additional cell blocks in the 1870s and 1890s. These late Victorian blocks weren't terribly different from the first iteration, but they did not include an attached exercise yard. Prisoners were still hooded for transportation, but they were at least given eye holes during this period. Instead of exercising in separate spaces, they did so in community, and by the 1890s, about half of all prisoners had a cellmate. By 1912, a prisoner newspaper, The Umpire, ran a monthly roster of intra-penitentiary baseball league scores. The separation of prisoners was eventually amended, and ESP became a more standard prison, known then as the New York system, in which inmates shared cells and were permitted to communicate. In January of 1924, inmates were finally allowed to eat together. Tablecloths were provided on Sundays and holidays, and the holiday decorations were described as a morale-building factor. This new system, the New York or Auburn system, was one of harsh punishment, and it soon took precedence over the repentant model of ESP. The Auburn model construed incarceration as punishment and terror in order to break the spirit of the recalcitrant individual. Close surveillance and corporal punishment would force the prisoner to conform to the desired readiness and installation of moral values. In 1929, the penitentiary administration produced a silent movie to celebrate the building's centennial. The film focuses on the recent changes made to the building. It shows new factory-style weaving shops, the commercial-grade bakery, and kitchen staff by dozens of prisoners 24 hours a day, and new guard towers with searchlights and sirens. And how about some of the more famous prisoners that were in ESP? A -a one-of-a-kind prisoner was brought in August of 1924. Pep, the cat-murdering dog, had his mugshot taken and was assigned prisoner C-2559. Pep allegedly murdered the governor's wife's cat. (laughs) However, the reason for Pep's incarceration remains the subject of some debate a newspaper article reported that the governor donated his own dog to the prison to increase inmate morale. In 1954, a notorious criminal and perhaps well-liked prisoner died. Morris, the rabbi Bulber, was at ESP serving a life sentence as a member of an arsenic murder ring located in Philadelphia. Called a veteran's witch doctor and compounder of charms, Bulber was one of the leaders of the group. They appealed to women who were willing to murder husbands in order to collect on their husband's insurance policies. (laughs) Between 1929 and 1930, a Mr. Alphonse Capone spent eight months in a relatively luxurious cell. An article in the Philadelphia Public Ledger describes Capone's cell. The whole room was suffused in the glow of a desk lamp which stood on a polished desk. On the once grim walls of the penal chamber hung tasteful paintings and the strains of a waltz were being emitted by a powerful cabinet radio receiver of handsome design and fine finish. At this time, Capone was worth over $40 million, approximately $550 million by today's standards, and had associations with over 700 murders. He could afford to call in a few favors, I think. Capone also controlled the sale of liquor to over 10,000 speakeasies. While in his relatively luxurious cell, though, Al Capone was apparently plagued by a spirit named Jimmy. 
He would let out blood-curdling streams in the darkness, begging for Jimmy to leave him alone. Many people believe Jimmy may have been the spirit of Jimmy Clark, one of the men killed by Capone's execution orders in the St. Valentine's Massacre. Even after his release from ESP, Capone was still hounded by this spirit. So out of desperation, Capone even hired a medium, but that didn't seem to work. Now, some scholars and writers make the connection to late-stage syphilis, when the disease affects the brain and can lead to hallucinations and insanity. After his imprisonment, Capone spent his days at home in pajamas and having imaginary conversations with long-dead colleagues or enemies in his backyard, delusions the entire family went along with. At age 48, Capone died on January 25, 1947, of a stroke. Unrest and division was rampant at ESP over the years. In 1933, angry inmates set fires to their cells and destroyed workshops in a riot. There was another riot the following year due to low wages. Inmates short-circuited electrical outlets and started fires and caused other disturbances. Warden Smith put down the riot with a strong show of force. In 1961, an inmate tricked a guard into opening the cell of another inmate. With the cells open, the inmates overpowered the guard and began the largest riot in the prison's history. Several hours later, a large force of police, guards, and state troopers reclaimed the prison. The riot fueled discussions to close Eastern State. Other factors contributed to the desire to close ESP. Changing social values and incarceration practices factored in, as did more pragmatic concerns. At that point, the aged building had so many electrical and mechanical problems, it was too expensive to restore. After closing in 1971 and before preservation efforts began in 1991, Eastern State was left to vandals, nature, and stray cats. In 1994, ESP once again opened its doors, but this time as a museum. So Eastern State Penn only hosts tourists now and has been designated a National Historic Landmark since 1965. With all of that, it's no wonder that ESP is thought to be haunted. It is reputed to be one of the most studied sites in the United States for paranormal activity, and it is the frequent star of TV programming focusing on haunted places. Tourists and employees alike have reported weeping, moaning, and whispering being heard on the cell blocks, and visual sights of apparitions are common. Visitors to ESP have reported seeing the ghost of Joseph Taylor. Taylor bludgeoned an overseer named Michael Durand to death in 1884, and after the horrific crime, Taylor calmly re-entered his cell and went to sleep. The apparition of a mysterious woman is spotted so often that employees have named her the Soap Lady. She sits in the last cell on the second floor wearing white. The second floor held the woman's cell block when the prison was operational. People have reported seeing visions of ghostly faces in Block 4, and one of the most legendary tales of Block 4 comes from Gary Johnson, who helps maintain the crumbling old locks at the prison. In the early 1990s, he had just opened an old lock in cell Block 4 when he says a force gripped him so tightly that he was unable to move. He described a negative, horrible energy that exploded out of the cell. He said tormented faces appeared on the cell walls and that one form in particular beckoned to him. Guests claim to get a glimpse of a man standing in a guard tower on the property. However, there's no way to physically get to the top of the tower today. The brick stairs crumbled away many years ago. Those stories just scratch the surface of what happens at ESP. So... I have a friend here, Mr. Aaron Sagers, 
who is a paranormal researcher and has worked closely with Eastern State Penitentiary for years, and he's going to give us some insight on common reports and what people think is really going on inside those haunted crumbling cell blocks. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Aaron Sagers, everyone. <laughs> this is exciting. You know, actually, every time I think of Eastern State Penitentiary, I think of you because I feel like you're there all the time. Why is that? <laughs> Eastern State Penitentiary is my spooky home away from home. I have spent a lot of time there and they have brought me out many times to talk about the history, but also the paranormal tales that have emerged from there. But on a personal level, it was sort of ground zero for me entering the paranormal on a professional level. I had an experience there. I have always been fascinated by the paranormal. I've always been drawn in by high strangeness, but it was really at Eastern State that I had an experience that was a bit of a paradigm shift and set me on a path. Well, tell us what that was. Uh, okay, I guess I will. <laughs> sort of. I guess that's sort of the With point of this. that kind of intro, you need to tell yes. us. Well, I was there as a journalist. That's, that's my origin story, my career is as a journalist, and I still work in that world. And... I wasn't there looking for ghosts. I was there exploring the penitentiary. I was there alone. And I was walking down, as Amy mentioned, Cell Block 4 has quite the notorious reputation. And I was walking down this cell block, and it was at night. And, you know, that moment where you don't know why you look into a certain room or why you are drawn to a certain spot. I don't know what made me stop in front of this one particular cell block, but I look in and at the back of this cell, I see what we call a shadow figure. And it was very clear. I could 
clearly see this distinct form, and it was pacing back and forth, back and forth in the far back part of this cell. Now, I can't enter this cell because there is a bar that prevents you from going in there. But as I'm watching this figure go back and forth, pace back and forth, I have this moment of, I guess I'm going to talk to it. And I think a lot of people that have had experiences, they have this moment of like, I'm really just talking to myself. I'm crazy or whatever, but okay, I'm going to do it. And that's what I had. I, I said, okay, if something's back there, come closer. Pacing back and forth, back and forth, back and stop. And this form rushes me. My entire field of vision goes entirely black. It's, it's gone. And I leap back and release a few choice expletives. <laughs> and I pause. And again, I see this thing has now retreated to the far back of the cell and has continued pacing back and forth. And this is this, is this moment where I'm like, think I just saw a ghost. And yet I didn't say anything. I, I, I kind of kept it to myself. And time passes and someone else is in this area. And I happen to be in the area at the same time. And they're like, it looks like there's something pacing back and forth in the back of that cell. And this was this independent confirmation that they didn't know about. And to me, that validated the experience. And then time goes on. And I start doing events there, paranormal events. I join you, Amy. I join a lot of our, our friends and colleagues. And I don't tell people always this story, although that's ruined now that we're doing this podcast. Everyone knows <laughs> it. But I don't always reveal that story. But I always wait until someone kind of picks up on it. And they typically do. And I would say Cell Block 4 is really one of those locations that has a feeling to it, but it's also special for me. And and honestly, all throughout Eastern State, I've had so many, it seems like every time I go there, something weird happens and it's something different. Yeah. I mean, I have not been there. The last time I was there, I was quite pregnant. So it's been a long time, but um, only I would go hunting in the old jail while I'm pregnant. But you know, <laughs> do you recall that you and I had an experience there? Okay, so I had so many experiences. I knew as you were telling your story, I feel like you and I saw some sort of shadow or something. I, I remember distinctly using the laser grit there for right. the first time. Like that was one of the first places that I, for those that don't know, the laser grit is basically just this little pen that shoots out a grid of lasers. So a laser grid. And it makes it easier to see shadow figures in theory. Yes. And so I don't know if this was the experience, but I remember shining. It might've been cell block four. I'm not as familiar with all the cell blocks. It's been so long. They all look very spooky and very similar when you get in there. But I remember shining it down into a lower level and watching a shadow walk in and out of the laser grid from above. So that was what I remember being a pretty wild experience there. This was, I believe, cell block 12, or it was that part of the penitentiary. 
And there was that moment. But the thing that was even weirder for me is we were, yes, pointing this laser grid down because there are certain levels due to the the structure. It's it's unsafe in places. We were pointing down in a lower level that we could not access. So there was this shadow form. But beyond that, there was this mist does not even encapsulate oh i remember this yes it almost had a tangibility and it was in a cell like yeah it was i remember thinking because i was like is this dust like what is it and i I remember distinctly okay now i remember i just wasn't sure if that was you that i was was, it was thick and amorphous Mm -hmm. and the light the laser instead of you know i've i've been to many uh, uh, laser light shows. I was a big <laughs> fan of uh, Pink Floyd at the Observatory <laughs> in Orlando, uh, where I grew up. I, it doesn't. It doesn't look like mist that's going or a light laser light that's going through mist. Instead, it almost absorbed. Yes, it enveloped it. It's the same thing that happens with the shadow figures when it hits a shadow figure, like a legit shadow figure. If if you walk in front of a laser grid, it just looks like you have a laser on you. But when it hits like a shadow or something, it just disappears. It's very weird. Like a, I mean, I don't, I have no explanation for it. It's there's something about that location. I I think part of it, honestly, we have been to a lot of jails, asylums, hospitals, you know, all cheery places. There's something about Eastern State. I think the fact that it was left to just sit and be overtaken. For 20 years, I think it created something of a, a, a paranormal crockpot, like a stew, a gumbo was like just just kind of <laughs> percolating in there where it was almost like the activity was left to kind of build up. Yeah, it's I find Eastern State to be incredibly beautiful. They It was the first place that I heard the term arrested decay, which meaning that they basically they don't restore it any further and they don't let it deteriorate any further. And so it's just there. Like they clean out certain areas and and try to kind of, you know, build them back up so we can safely visit them. But there are places you go that have just been completely overtaken by nature. And I, I don't know what that does to the energy there. And I honestly, until I did this podcast and was doing all the research for it, I guess I did not understand the conditions that were in that building. I, I thought of it as kind of a traditional prison, whatever that may be. But I had no idea that the whole basis of silence, which sounds like the creepiest, weirdest punishment to me, that they were made to be silent at all times. Yes. And the the violence that the locations, the ghost stories began in 19, well, not began, but there are documented reports of ghost stories at Eastern State in 1940, in the 1940s, early 1940s. And the there was such violence there. There were riots. There was, but there was also, for instance, there was one doctor that worked there that was said to be carrying just basically a bucket of body parts throughout the halls because he was given free reign to conduct unauthorized autopsies. There was one young woman that came to collect the body of her father who had died and they said, oh, he's not ready yet. Well, okay, he's dead. Why isn't he ready? When she does finally retrieve this body, he has an autopsy scar around the crown of his head. And basically, this doctor just plucked out the brain and did what he will with it. And there's a lot of tales of that. And 
people that were obviously suffering from mental illness at that time. It wasn't really talked about, but there was one inmate who was incredibly emaciated and couldn't stand up and was in his cell. And at one point, a judge became involved because there were investigations into the treatment there. And the judge is like, well, why is this guy like this? And I believe one of the guards response was, is just like everyone else. He just really wants attention. This total dismissal of some of these things. And now, since it has been a while since you've been there, what they do is they do document the prison system and the experience of not just Eastern State, but the prison system, correctional system throughout the world. But one of the things that they do is because this this prison closed down in the 70s, there are a lot of inmates that are alive and they have collected audio, they have shown videos. And so all day long, while this prison is operating as a landmark that you can tour, you are hearing the voices and the accounts of all of this history. It's like having a, a basically a trigger object just going constantly. constantly. Wow, that's so interesting. What I loved about the folks there is that they're very open about their ghosts. They're very open about their hauntings. They're obviously very open about their history. It's, it is the kind of epitome of turning a bad situation into something positive. Like they do do so much with their nonprofit and everything, but having been there lately, like how, how are the haunts going? Like, is it any more active, any less or? Yes. I I think that much like the rest of the world, you know, following while still enduring this pandemic, it has altered some things there. And I have spoken to people at Eastern State that say it's almost like the ghosts are hungry for the attention and that they want that acknowledgement. And, and for a place that saw such suffering, if there are, if there are presences there that continue to linger, I think maybe people coming and visiting a place that does frankly discuss the history, maybe if something is lingering there, it sees these tourists, it sees the museum component as a way of having their story told. Yeah. I mean, I've always felt like, so whenever we investigate prisons, I'm always adamant that we don't go in with judgment. I think it's really easy for people to assume that everyone they're talking to in a, in a jail was a bad person in some way. But, you know, I, I always say withhold judgment. You don't know their story, especially a place like Eastern State being in operation for so long. You have no idea how or why they ended up there. And so I think that that understanding is really important as you investigate there. So have you you've investigated there a lot? Do you think that's the way to go about it? Do you think they respond to that kind of communication or I think that well consider that I think the youngest inmate there was an 11-year-old girl. Mm. So you cannot look at that and say, "Oh, that was a bad right. person," you know? Yes, first off, I think if if you're going to enter any location, yes, you should think about if there are people lingering in a different form there they were people they were they so treat them with respect so yes i do say go about things with a respectful outlook and ask questions you know how did you pass the time what were your hobbies in this while you were stuck here or what did you learn during your time here i think those are all good and i also i do wonder for some of the people that did commit 
horrible acts that were legitimately sentenced there, maybe they're going through their own process in the afterlife where they are processing their own guilt, their own regrets, their own grief. Maybe they are also going through something that they have to get through while they are there still. Yeah. And I mean, I've wondered that because you have that kind of classic unfinished business, which is why I think a lot of spirits linger. And in a place like that, I could see this kind of self-imposed sentence happening where people feel like they don't deserve to move on from there. I mean, I'm completely speculating, of course, but just having investigated many prisons, I've just I've I've felt that in a way and, and gotten evidence to indicate that. I think there's so many potentials there. But yeah, I agree. And I almost wonder if Of course, we talk about things like reincarnation, and that is a way of like processing through your past deeds as you move on. Well, what if there's this other aspect where maybe these ghosts, which is a very simplistic word, but maybe maybe their afterlife is this prolonged therapy session where they're having to go through everything before they feel like they can let go or move on or whatever it is that they do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so now Eastern State is open again for tours, right? It is. Okay. And so people can go there, they can visit. Are they doing investigations at all that you know of? Or I don't know if they've begun the investigations yet, because I, I have to imagine that involves a lot of protocols and whatnot, safety protocols. But if they are, and if they begin again, I'm ready to be back in line to do it again. I, I love the place. I find it haunting. I find it beautiful. And I, I definitely think for any paranormal investigator out there, anyone that wants to pursue it, it is a great location to go to. That is awesome. Well, thank you, Mr. Sagers, for joining me on our first ever live episode of Haunted Road. And everyone here, I really appreciate you taking the time. And for everybody listening, you can join us at places like this. This is Strange Escapes, my company. You can check it out at strange-escapes.com. Kindred Spirits premieres December 18th on Discovery Plus and Travel Channel. And anything else you want to shout out, Mr. Sagers? (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, Amy, thank you so much for having me here at the Mount Washington and on the live show. It is an honor. And for anyone that wants to follow my work, you can see me on Paranormal Caught on Camera on Travel Channel and Discovery Plus. You can see me on the Ripley's Believe it or not, Ripley's Road Trip YouTube series. That's more of an oddity show rather than a paranormal one. And you can also just say hi to me across social media at Aaron Sagers. Or if you see me in person, don't make it weird, but come up and say hi in person. (laughs) Well, you guys, I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into Eastern State. To me, it's just a fascinating bit of history. I had no idea actually what went on within those walls and strangely now I'm feeling very drawn to getting back there so I can't wait to visit again thank you so much everyone I appreciate it I'm Amy Bruni and this was Haunted Road (laughs) Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey the podcast is written and hosted by Amy Bruni Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Taylor Hagerdorn is the show's researcher. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.